Good morning and welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. So today we're going to be talking about step two of integrating transformative experiences. And just to kind of refresh our memory, right, what is a transformative experience? It is anything that causes a radical shift in consciousness in the way that we experience ourselves, experience the world, experience one another, our emotional state, our mental state, our thought patterns, our way of relating to other people, a way of how we view our habits and our life choices and our decisions, something that essentially is like a wedge that pierces through our neurology, our conditioning, our identity, and leads us into a place of tremendous force of energy, of uh powers within us, which can either be extremely disturbing or also incredibly uh, empowering and useful if we can understand how best to wield these forces. And that's a lot of what this is about, is about not just trying to come in contact with those forces, because that's something that in a lot of ways, it doesn't require a lot of effort. Uh, Anyone can go to a plant medicine ceremony, for instance, take a cup of something and have an experience. There was a, uh, a Lakota elder, John Lamedeer, and he talks about this. Uh, he was actually a peyote road man, a Sundance chief, a Yawipi chief, and, and many other uh, titles within the Lakota tradition. There's a very hilarious and funny book about him called... Uh, Lame Deer Seeker of Visions, it's phenomenal. Highly recommend if people are interested in the Lakota tradition to check out that book. It really touches on the humor of the uh, Lakota traditional native culture. Uh, Something that perhaps a lot of people, according to the author, uh, aren't always aware of. And at the same time, the depth and the, the power of these cultures and you know he's talking about how anyone could eat peyote and have an experience and there's a moment in the book where he goes the lakota way is to do it the difficult way uh when he's talking about for instance the sundance where they're piercing themselves and they're going through these extremely arduous painful initiations uh fasting without food or water for many days and this is not from me by any means trying to undermine plant medicine or plant medicine traditions which also have a tremendous amount of discipline surrounding them as well as i said lame deer himself i believe was a peyote roadman uh you can check that out but it's something to reflect upon that some initiation processes don't necessarily require us to take a significant amount of responsibility and willpower Sometimes we can just eat a plant that's growing out of the ground, as is the case with peyote, and have an experience and then feel that we have figured something out. (laughs) And perhaps maybe we have. You figured something out by having the experience. And there's nothing uh, that should be said that says we didn't have something profound happen to us if we took that route. But what any uh, person of ceremonial knowledge or whether it be plant medicine or at any other kind of tradition would say the real work begins once you leave the space 
How do you bring illumination to your daily life? Are you choosing to utilize the experience as a crutch and as a way of escape and as a way of advice and as a way of avoiding and running from yourself? Or are you taking the lessons and the epiphany and the revelation perhaps you had through the experience, whether it is by eating something, drinking something, undergoing arduous physical discipline, transformation, uh, meditation, yoga, fasting, whatever it is. And then taking that inspiration, that self-knowledge of capacity for change and transformation and will and applying that into everyday actions and how we relate to the world in everyday moments. And they say this is where the real work is, right? Because this is where it's most difficult. It's really easy to <laughs> have spiritual thoughts and to uh, do all these kind of woo-woo-y things when we're all dressed up in a fancy outfit and there's beautiful music being played and there's a beautiful altar and people are, are being very formal with each other. But the question is like, what happens when all that stuff breaks down? How do we behave? And this is a big reason why I and many other of the people who I live with have chosen to live in community is that we're seeking to come in contact with the authentic aspects of ourselves that we often run from. And then we're attempting to enact a discipline and a will and a consciousness over our lower nature in order to become the best version of ourselves so that this very uh, agreeable, you could say, spiritual aspect of ourselves that comes out in perfect circumstances uh, is not limited to those perfect circumstances. And the only way that we can really get to the authenticity of ourselves and be exposed to the parts of ourselves that are damaged, broken, traumatized, or <laughs> selfish or arrogant, whatever it is, is by being in this churn of social relations of people of all walks of life, not just people who you want to be with. The last episode that I posted on this podcast was one I did with my good friend and brother Matt Canale. I was playing some music with him today, actually. And we're talking about community in the second half of the podcast. And a lot of it was about how what people don't understand is how much of your life, if you are choosing to live um, in accordance with your desires in some level, you will avoid people who you don't want to be with and you will seek out people you want to be with. It's totally normal. I mean, that's like, that's like normal behavior. Like I, until I was talking with him, I never really thought to question that. It's like, we just go towards people that we are attracted towards and we avoid people we are repulsed towards from. And it was interesting talking to Max, I was reflecting on this, that yeah, like when you live in community, <laughs> that's not something that you have an option to uh, conform to. You are forced against your will to deal with people who you do not want to be with and you are forced to integrate them into your daily life, into your home life. And this is a very difficult practice because, well simply put who wants to do that right we don't want to be around things we don't like and we want to be around things we do like and this is 
a way of putting ourselves in a state where we are forced to find equanimity around others. So my guess is most people uh, are not living in community. Maybe you are, and you know, props to you if you're doing that. Keep it up. It's a difficult practice, and it's challenging, but extraordinarily rewarding. But uh, nonetheless, we want to start to take that equanimity and apply it to our daily life. And what I wanted the central theme of this podcast to kind of be about was discipline and tools for discipline. I talked a lot on the last part of this podcast episode on integration work about more the mindset of someone that is striving to actualize what they have experienced in the transformative experience in the daily life. And I want this one to be a little bit more practical in terms of the tools that you're using. So even though you're not living in community, perhaps, uh, you can find ways to connect to community. And so just to start a little bit with it, right, you know, that I believe the there's the, the Dharma, the Buddha, and the Sangha. So what we have is the teacher, the students and the teachings. These are this is the foundation of what we're trying to work with uh, in order to get to the authentic part of ourselves, which involve, also involves looking at really dirty, crusty, gnarly aspects of ourselves, being like, okay, I have to own up and acknowledge that the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. I have to first look inwards. So this is what the Buddha, the Dharma, and the community, the Sangha, the teacher, the teaching, and the teachings, students, excuse me, are asking us to look into. They're asking us to look at ourselves as the source of our misery, as the source of our discontentment, as the source of our alienation and whatever is plaguing us. So while you might not live in community, you can still understand how you are part of a community you're part of a global community you're part of a national community you're part of a state community you're part of a social community what regardless of whether it's people gathering to do practices together working together to sustain finances coming together to eat at a certain location on a common period of time uh i remember going to for instance the russian turkish bathhouse in the east village in manhattan uh, and there's always a community there. There's always communities and pockets of people everywhere. And it's something that is essentially unavoidable. So even if you don't live in community, what I'm hoping is you can take away from this these uh, podcasts is how can we apply these principles of discipline within the framework of whatever community that you live in. And just because you're not living in a spiritual community doesn't mean that you can't apply these spiritual principles of discipline into whatever community that you are a part of. So before I get too much more into the whole aspect of community and communal living and all those things, I want to talk just a little bit about some of the essential things for how to first deal with ourselves before we even bring in other people into the picture. Because uh, that's the first step. The first step is really we have to take care of ourselves. If we don't take care of ourselves, how can you expect to take care of anybody else? So we want to get to a state where this experience that we've had, whether it's Vipassana, yoga, ayahuasca, whatever, has given us the vision 
of the power that we have as a as a being as a divine being to move in the world in a way that is transcendental and uh, is transformative to the rest of the world as well. But in order to do that, we first have to just take care of ourselves. If we can't take care of ourselves, you'll be of no use to anybody else. Someone else will have to come in and take care of you. So a lot of the training of these traditions uh, and also a lot within the shamanic traditions is learning how can we take care of ourselves and take care of others. If we can orient our mind in that way and then take practical steps in that direction, we can find ourselves living out whatever the vision is that we received in the experience. So the very first step, the very, very first thing that comes to me is what we do when we're unconscious. <laughs> do we have enough time unconscious? I'm referring to being sleep. Sleep is extremely, extremely important. So it's a funny thing because uh, in a lot of the ancient traditions, I don't think a lot of emphasis has been placed necessarily on sleep. Uh, in a lot of the shamanic ceremonies, they start at night and they have you up the whole night. You're fasting for days and you're not, you're awake for days and you're trying to keep yourself awake. I've heard about a vision quest in Mexico where they, uh, something like they are in a tiny hole or something where you can't lay down or sit down for days so that you don't fall asleep and you're forced to like go into a trance state because you're standing the whole time. Eventually you fall asleep while standing. And I've also heard about whether or not it was something that was meant to be taken literally tribes where there's there's people where they try to keep themselves awake and the whole the whole practice of the rituals to keep themselves awake without allowing them to go to sleep uh and they will uh they're constantly finding like trickery in certain ways where they will prevent one another from falling asleep and you know there's a lot of things that happen when we go into states of sleep deprivation uh we do go into a state of autophagy, which is a Greek word, which means self-eating, which is something that's induced through fasting as well, where it's like a repair and restorative um, state of consciousness. When we enter into it during fasting, it's very good for the brain and very beneficial for the physiology. But when you do it from sleep deprivation, it's kind of because like your brain is saying, I'm messed up and I need to do something to repair the damage that you're doing to me by keeping me awake. It's just something to keep in mind adrenaline levels go up which is also why when you are uh been awake for you know longer than you should have sometimes you can feel more alert and you can feel uh, more sharp it's and at the, at the same time you also feel really distorted and i've i've personally have gone through lots of sleep deprivation through different practices and traditions and work stuff and all kinds of things uh, and I can say there's been many times where I felt like super sharp after not sleeping. So it, there's a couple things here about it that feel contradictory. Like one is, you know, certain traditions say like you should like strive to sleep less and do more and become more like activated and, and need less. But then you look at what neuroscience is telling you and it's basically saying that sleep is like causing brain damage for you and that's not an overstatement uh just a quick thing here this is a quote from Do dr matthew walker neuroscientist uc berkeley and arguably one of the world's leading sleep the world's leading sleep expert so that simply put sleep is the foundation of mental health 
couple things to keep in mind. Even if you feel all right energy-wise when you wake up, you are still massively screwing yourself over if you're sleeping less than seven to nine hours. Getting less than seven hours of sleep has disastrous consequences for your memory, immune system, hormonal balance, muscle growth, fat burning, emotional regulation, and disease prevention. None of these consequences are noticeable in your energy levels. So you could feel perfectly fine in the morning after your regular six hours of sleep. That's not because you are fine. It's because the damage you're causing doesn't show up in your energy levels. <laughs> bragging about how little sleep you get is idiocy. That's like bragging you eat at McDonald's and drink a bottle of scotch for breakfast. Cool. You're destroying your mind and body for no reason. You can feel okay on five or six hours of sleep a night. And if you want to live an okay life, sleeping five to six hours is a good idea. But if you want to reach your potential, achieve peak performance, or feel and be your best, seven to nine hours is mandatory. If you grew up in New York City, you have no idea how many stars are in the sky until you leave and go to the countryside where there is no light pollution. Until you experience it, you don't realize what you've been missing. Sleep is the same. Until you start consistently sleeping seven to nine hours every night, you don't know what you're missing. You'll soon realize the normal feeling you've been accustomed to is terrible compared to how you'll feel when you prioritize adequate sleep. Many people think they only need five or six hours of sleep a night. They believe they're some special genetic case. They're almost all wrong. So that's a pretty, like, the word that's coming is, like, kind of cutthroat perspective on it. I think there definitely are people that are living full and empowered lives who are sleeping less than that. I know there are. That being said, is it ideal? And according to neuroscience and the study of what is happening in the brain when you are sleeping, the answer is no. And they're saying that, you know, that's because they know more about sleep in the last few years than they have in the last hundreds of years because of uh, modern technology's capacity to allow us to observe what's actually happening in the brain. So I don't want to make this too heady into science or make get into too much of like, trying to justify the positions that I'm taking. But I'm sharing this perspective because a lot of times when you listen to traditional practices or ancient practices, shamanic practices, uh, adequate sweet sleep is not oftentimes really emphasized. And what I would really stress is this. We are at an optimal level of performance and capacity when we're fully aligned with nature. I think most people are going to uh, agree with that statement. When we are in a line with the way that nature asks, is asking us to perform, that's our optimal uh, state of being and relating in the world. And if you look at it, uh, eight hours of sleep a night is natural for people. It's unnatural to be forcing yourself to wake up by an alarm clock when you feel like you're you know, been punched in the head or something like that because you're so tired and not sleeping. Uh, so if you look at it, and this is something that Matthew Walker talked about, the sleep doctor, he said, you know, nature, mother nature wants you to sleep eight hours a night. So I think that that's a really good way to put it because what he, all he's saying is that neuroscience is affirming the natural cycles that come from mother nature 
That's it. It's not saying that this is some like Western ideology. It's saying this is the way that nature designed you. And that's a really good um, barometer to conform to. So listening to what nature wants from us. And he also says, you know, all the, the different cycles that you go through up until the very last one that occurs in those last hour or two are all necessary. So that being said, uh, there's a lot of transformative work, ceremonial work and things like that that occur uh, late at night and go on for days. Uh, and you might be up for days without sleeping and things like that. And if you're trying to induce an experience, that can be an effective method. But it is important to make sure that you are balancing it. And while it's okay to go through this process, I think that there's a, there's a percentage of life, I've heard something like 20% is a good percentage where it's like you should get less sleep. Just make sure that you're doing something that you love and you really enjoy. Because if you're not, then, you know, what's the point? You're just damaging yourself for no reason. But it's also worth noting, right? Like if you enjoy it and you have a strong intention, a strong prayer with what you're trying to do, uh, there is an aspect of sacrifice that goes into uh, extracting the real nectar of life, so to speak. And I do think that a lot of times we can get too caught up into self-preservation, which is impossible because we are, all have a death sentence the moment that we were born. And that, you know, life is temporal and changing and important that we put ourselves in the face of risk from time to time and challenge our limitations and see, like, what are we made of, you know? And the only way to do that is to kind of break out of the comfort zone and structures of things. So there's a couple of things here. One is like, get good sleep. Sleep eight hours a night. Just do it. Sleep seven to nine hours a night. Catch up on sleep. Make sure that that is a priority in your life. It will provide balance for you. It will provide homeostasis. It will allow equanimity to more easily flow into your existence. So, uh, at the same time, that doesn't mean never stay up all night praying or doing some kind of dance or meditation or something like that. There's time and a place where it's like, okay, all or nothing, let's leave it all on the table because we're seeking something. We're on a vision quest. We want to obtain something. So the key thing here is understanding right time and place. The, as much as possible, sleep. And make sure if you're not, then you recover. But... I also encourage people with everything that I say all the time, do your own research. Uh, there's always new information. and Sometimes I say things that are wrong and so on and so forth. But I recommend people do their own research. And I think that the, the consensus around the necessity and importance of sleep is something that is pretty well agreed upon. There isn't really much debate in those communities. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is uh, what do you do right when you get up after sleep? And the very first thing that I recommend people do, that I do as well, uh, is get outside and get sunlight in your eyes. And I like what I love about this one is there's really a correlation and a parallel between ancient shamanic initiatic teachings and modern neuroscience. So 
in the practice of like solar yoga, for instance, the idea is that we want to synchronize with the cycles of the sun and the cosmos, and we want to align our energy systems with that. And that there's a very special thing that occurs when the sun is setting and when the sun is rising and uh, these changes in the day, uh, they are something very, there's like a spiritual energy that comes to us. And this is something though that you can feel. And what's cool is that neuroscience has really affirmed this deeply uh, in a less esoteric and metaphysical way. So basically, simple quote here, viewing two to th three two to 30 minutes of morning sunlight is essential for mental and physical health uh, getting sunlight in your eyes first thing in the morning is absolutely vital to mental and physical health it is perhaps the most important thing that any and all of us can, can and should do in order to pro promote metabolic well-being promote the positive function of your hormonal system and get your mental health steering in the right direction so uh i don't want to get too into like i said the heady neuroscience of this but uh, another quote here to explain it. Um, during phase one, again, within zero to about eight or nine hours after waking, bright lights in your environment, in particular overhead lights, are going to facilitate focus. They're going to facilitate further release of things like dopamine, norepinephrine, adrenaline, and healthy amounts of cortisol, stress hormone that activates alertness. So the essence of it is my uh, understanding is that when we wake up in the morning, we have a cortisol uh, burst that comes through, which is like a shot of energy, stress, alertness. And in the morning time, it's good. You want it to have it happen. It's what keeps you alert, focused and awake. And But it needs to get triggered. And it gets triggered by neurons in the eyes. And when we get sunlight in directly into our eyes, not through glasses or glass or car window, but going outside. You don't need to stare directly into the sun, but when you are outside in the UV rays, specifically ones that are like the blue light ones that are connected to the contrast of the, uh, the morning sunrise and sunset frequencies, that type of like colored light in the morning that can be blue, yellow pink red that kind of thing those unique uv frequencies are triggering neurons in your eyes that are sending off a uh, signal to your hormonal system to release that jolt of cortisol that lets your body know it's time to wake up and to become alert and then this sets off a timer for when melatonin will be released something like 16 hours later that lets your body know okay now it's time to go to sleep so this practice of Getting this jolt of cortisol is something that's also going to allow you to not just feel alert in the morning, but be able to fall asleep easily at night. And you're timing your your entire hormonal system through this, and you're aligning your hormonal system and all your glands so that they are in direct and right relationship to the natural environment and the circadian cycles that are occurring around you. So... Uh, it also is releasing dopamine, which is going to make you feel good and motivated and give you drive and a sense of well-being. So it's a very important thing for waking up, feeling alert, feeling energized, feeling balanced, but then also being able to fall asleep later. So a really simple thing that is going to impact deeply your uh, 
capacity to sleep, which is, as we were just talking about prior, one of the most essential, if not the most important thing that you possibly could do. So these are very simple practices. Sleep well. Go outside in the morning for something like 2 to 10 minutes. They say if it's cloudy, go out for 30 plus minutes. Uh, and it, it, these are, this is something that's very simple, right? Uh, and it's accessible to virtually anybody. If you're living in a place where you get very little uh, natural light in the winter, then bright, bright lights can help. Although there is not really a legit substitute at the end of the day for natural UV light coming from the sun. Uh, that being said, um, and then also in relationship to this uh, sense of the sun and the brain and the eyes and the hormonal system. Uh, it is also highly recommended to view the light at sunset because you get this same blue light uh, type of color in the sky that's going to adjust the neurons in your brain, which actually can protect you from the damaging effects of artificial light late at night. So what they say is that basically from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., uh, if there's chronic bright light exposure, it triggers a suppression of dopamine that leads to deficiencies in learning, emotional, mental well-being, and a whole host of other problems, including a connection to the pancreas that starts dysregulating blood sugar. Uh, and I've heard it, it essentially, it's causing some kind of damage to the brain and the dopaminergic system. Um, it says here that while UVB exposure in the morning throughout the day is going to be very important for elevating and maintaining elevated mood, avoiding UVB light at night is actually a way in which we can prevent activation of this eye to parahabineural pathway that can actually turn on depression. So avoid exposure to this type of light from artificial sources from the hours of 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. So at the same time, if you get the natural uv light outside once again not through glass i say that glass blocks something like 50 percent of the uv light that comes in from your eye but if you go outside for two to ten minutes and you view the the blue light coming in the sunset in the direction of the sunset you don't need to stare directly into the sun but in that general area is highly recommended if you do that you're setting yourself up to be protected where you are going to be able to have a little bit more of a buffer looking at artificial light later at night. So this is something that I just think is super fascinating because this is a confirmation of what ancient people already knew about that there's some kind of a magical, mystical presence that comes through during the sunrise and the sunset. I was recently in Joshua Tree in California. If you ever want to see a powerful sunset, Joshua Tree, California. It's like, whoa, super special. And there's definitely this presence of something mystical that's coming through. And what neuroscience is saying is that, yeah, because the light, the frequencies are changing your brain. They're changing your hormonal system. They're changing everything in your body. In this case, you know, if it's in the wrong direction, it can alter your pancreas. So we are directly impacted in many ways by our environment. So... The encouragement here is utilize nature to attune and regulate and balance yourself and become aware 
of your symbiotic relationship to nature, your dependency, interdependency with nature. We are in nature. And that's a lot of what the healing work, I think, from these integration, excuse me, from these transformative experiences comes through is that it's about reactivating our symbiotic relationship with nature and understanding that relationship. A lot of what the healing work is, is outgrowing and shedding this alienation, egotism, and seeing our inner interwovenness with everything else, both in a mystical consciousness sense, but also in the physical, uh, biological sense. And I, I love here this by uh, evidence provided by neuroscience showing us that, yeah, I mean, the sunlight is responsible in a lot of ways for your happiness. So, and your mental emotional balance. So, a, another thing that is very essential and very simple is how are we approaching food? And, you know, we're starting foundation where we got sleep, how we're viewing light, what are we putting in our body, how are we eating, when are we eating, how much are we eating? And the, or just to share my own personal practice with this is I tend to stop eating around 7.30, sometimes 6.30. And I'll start eating generally around 10.30 a.m., 11.30, sometimes noon, sometimes a little later. Generally, though, between 10.30 and 12, I start eating again. I make sure I get about a 16-hour fast in every day. Very simple intermittent fasting practice of 16.8. Uh, where you have an eight-hour feeding window and a 16-hour fasted window. And I like this quote by Rumi. It says, Fasting is the first principle of medicine. Fast and see the strength of the spirit reveal itself. Fasting blinds the body in order to open the eyes of the soul. So what's really effective about the intermittent fasting is that you are daily entering into a state of autophagy I mentioned that a few moments ago prior about you're in a state of cleaning and as i said when you do it through fasting as opposed to sleep deprivation it's very good for the brain there's two pathways there's i believe one called mTOR which is essentially a pathway in the brain when it's activated you're in a state of growth if it goes haywire that's where cancer comes in there's another pathway called ampk that pathway is related to restoration cleaning and repair that pathway uh, gets stimulated, I think, something along the lines between 12 and 16 hours uh, from no food. And this is what allows us to clean up all our neurological debris, damaged mitochondria, so on and so forth. And there's a there's a doctor out of Harvard, a guy named Chris Palmer. He has a book, something called like Brain Energy. I haven't read the book or anything, but I listened to him talk a little bit. And really, really, really interesting. He was saying that he had a guy who had, I think it's called schizoaffective disorder, which is not just schizophrenia. It's also like you have a crazy emotional mood swings on top of schizophrenia, uh, which in transparency, I, I kind of thought that was sort of the nature of schizophrenia anyway. But the point being is that you have these crazy mood swings while also having these paranoid delusions and hallucinations, auditory hallucinations and distortions from reality. And... He had this patient who was dealing with this for like 30 years. The guy was super overweight, was couldn't hold a job, lived with his father. Really, you know, miserable, hor horrible situation. And, and Western psychiatric medicine wasn't really able to do anything to help him out. 
And he went to Chris Palmer, who had been seeing for a while, and he's like, well, you know, I need to change something. Let's start with perhaps the simplest thing. I want to lose weight. And Chris Palmer recommended a ketogenic diet, uh, which basically you're restricting carbohydrates and sugar, uh, depriving your body of glucose, which is what you primarily are running your system off of. And instead, what happens is it starts to run off ketones, which are produced from the liver uh, when there's a restriction of carbohydrates and sugar and glucose and all that. And it's a much cleaner source. It enhances cognition. Uh, it enhances the immune, immune system. And a number of very positive things. But in this case, Chris Palmer is recommending it just so the guy would lose weight. Because at this point, your, your ketones are happening. They're being uh, utilized in the way as your body's burning fat. And it's burning the deeper aspect of, of the energy stored in the body. Not just food coming from the sugar. And once this guy went on this diet, the ketogenic diet, immediately uh, his schizophrenia cleared up. And it was like this shocking thing where he was like, oh, you know, those paranoid thoughts, like, they're gone. The voice is gone. This is gone. Everything's fine. And all of a sudden, like, the whole condition of the guy just totally uh, vanished. And Chris Palmer's like, what? <laughs> we just healed somebody from schizoaffective disorder from the ketogenic diet? And it was interesting to hear him talk as he got into it, realizing, okay, the ketogenic diet is one of the only diets that was created not for weight loss. It was created to treat uh, epilepsy. And so it's basically designed to treat a brain neurological disorder. And it's something that I think went back to like ancient Greece. You can look it up. Uh, that's where the treatment uh, and the of utilizing the ketogenic diet stems back to. And... Not only that, he was saying that a lot of psychiatric medicine uh, is oftentimes derived from epileptic seizure medicine. So there's this really fascinating parallel. But what you can take from it as someone that's either you know not epileptic or trying to lose tons of weight or schizoaffective, hopefully, is that uh, when you enter in a state of ketosis which means you have deprived yourself of carbohydrates and sugar for something around like 12, 14 hours, uh, your brain is repairing itself. Your mind, your emotional state, your mental clarity, all these things start to arise uh, and a radically profound transformation in consciousness, which can, down to the level of the mitochondria, is what they were saying, uh, starts to occur. And this is something that you can exercise in yourself daily. I tried the ketogenic one time as a vegetarian. I'm pretty much vegan these days. And it's like, God bless me, difficult, man. <laughs> it's like you're just eating tofu and eggs. It kind of sucks <laughs> if you're vegetarian. So I don't, uh, I don't recommend it if you're vegetarian. But if you do follow intermittent fasting, you will enter into a state of ketosis daily. And it's one thing that I really love about my mornings is like I have this extremely striking state of mental clarity and emotional grace and equanimity that comes in every morning in the sense of real like ah like well-being that comes through this intermittent fasting practice but also right from getting enough sleep getting sunlight in my eyes getting the cortisol and the dopamine and then also abstaining from food so it's and it's not just a neurological practice it's also very much just an act of will because 
there's times I wake up and there's like some really good looking stuff in the refrigerator, man. And choosing not to eat it is an act of restraint. And to build willpower, mental toughness by abstaining from things, it pours into all aspects of our life. It's setting the tone early in the day, saying that, no, I'm choosing to have mental, emotional clarity and well-being and equanimity over like sugar or salt or craving or desire. And it what's very beneficial about this practice of this simple intermittent fasting is that when you do break the fast, you have a much greater appreciation for whatever it is you're eating, but also like because you've exercised restraint and willpower, now when you choose something, you're less likely to choose something that's crap. You're less you're less likely to just impulsively grab for something because you've been you've been wrestling with that. And I find that the more you do this, the easier it gets. Uh, it's not much of a challenge anymore because once you really tap into the mental clarity that comes from the state of ketosis uh, and the state of being empty, as Rumi is talking about in that, in that quote where he says, fasting opens the eyes of your soul. Uh, it, it, simply put, it opens you, right? You're in a state of openness and connection and flow. Uh, you're not clogging your system up with food. And I did a whole several podcasts uh, last year on like the different stages of fasting and what happens, you know, at each stage. It's really fascinating. Like your your whole immune system regenerates when you do it for a couple of days and your growth hormone goes up like a thousand percent and you repair DNA. I mean, it's really wild what it does to you. You realize that like if you're struggling with some kind of a mental emotional complex or something like that, or some crappy things are happening in your life, you're going through a difficult period. It's like, stop eating. If you can repair your DNA, your bad attitude probably isn't going to stand much of a chance because the force of your physiology is so powerful that these little mental games of our ego are, uh, not able to stand much of a chance and that's but that's been my experience i had a time i was like depressed one time (laughs) after being like really mentally and emotionally in a good place for years and i was like whoa i'm depressed again i'm like what the hell is happening (laughs) and i didn't know what to do and i just stopped eating and then i remember 24 hours later i was looking at myself and i was like man like nothing has changed in the external obstacles of things I've been dealing with or anything like that but I just feel good like I feel good all of a sudden so (laughs) like what happened was just that the mental emotional framework of like the identity just got eaten up I feel autophagy self-eating you know the AMP cap AMPK pathway right it just cleared out the whole thing and all of a sudden you're just sitting there and you're like I feel very clear and I feel very still and centered and strong too because uh, this is another aspect of what happens is there's just a hormone called ghrelin that gets released when you are hungry and it just tells you you need to eat but if you just outlast the release of that hormone uh, you find that you're actually not hungry you're just craving something and your body is signaling to you to eat and this is established basically on a timer system uh, just that's how our hormonal system seems to work with a lot of things and if you simply just, you know, push back against your in- instinctive, reactive, impulsive tendency of the hormonal release of ghrelin, exert your willpower and your consciousness, 
and your uh, need for instant gratification, then what happens is you restabilize and you plateau and you uh, acclimate at a place where not only do you not feel hungry, but you feel like clear, strong, centered, and deep, more deeply f focused in a way that you did not before. Uh, and personally speaking, I don't really start to genuinely feel like the effects of no food, meaning like a sense of fatigue after two days. So somewhere around 50 hours, I'll start to kind of feel it. But generally at 48 hours, you know, because what happens is also adrenaline levels are going up when you are fasting. Uh, and if you think about it, right, it makes perfect sense because when uh, an animal needs to eat and they haven't eaten and they're living in the wild, in the abrasive, you know, tundra or whatever, forest or something like that, uh, if you, you miss a meal, like, you wouldn't just die. <laughs> that would not be a very effective strategy. That would be something that would... Uh, lead to the extinction of that species. So instead, what nature does is it basically jacks your system up, enhances your cognition, enhances your immune function, enhances your capacity to deal and endure pain and discomfort, and makes you a better version of yourself. And then uh, you're able to find the food that you need. So it makes you more focused, more driven, more determined. It's not going to make you, oh, you missed dinner? Okay, now you die. <laughs> Be very, very impractical. So uh, generally, I don't really feel like any kind of sense of fatigue till after about 50 hours. And even then, it's more of a mental game than anything else. Like, you know, going five days without food, uh, you find like that what happens is you just kind of go through these waves where you'll feel really hungry and weak, but then all of a sudden you just like shift your focus and all the strength you need for whatever activity is there. And... This is a really, really important practice to engage yourself with. So I try to do at least one 24 to 36 hour water fast a week just to stay in touch with that state of consciousness that is transcendent of the need for craving for taste and food and fullness, understanding that I am already full, <laughs> right? Like that's kind of one of these funny things that with addiction, uh, and not just addiction, but also just craving, which is, you know, because maybe we're not an addict of something, but maybe we do crave something. And it's always based on this sense that, you know, there's something lacking inside of us that there is like a hole that can't be filled and we are void or something like that. And I, I find that the void and the hole is actually very comforting and empowering and creative and engaging once we allow ourselves to fully explore the depth of it and enter into that place with a lot of like curiosity like what happens when i don't eat you know what happens when i enter into like a hyper state of awareness where like i'm not running from any pain or discomfort but i'm embracing it fully and then utilizing that to expand upon whatever creative endeavors or uh service work perhaps that i'm inspired to activate into so, uh, you know, mentality around the practice, right, is a really important thing. Understanding that it's not just a neurological thing. It's not just a physiological thing. It's also about setting our state of consciousness to be in a more fierce way in which we reapproach our comfort zone and our boundaries and 
understanding that there's something that is more powerful within us that does not that actually functions better when we don't eat and that neuroscience through these practices and studies actually affirms this very much so generally like i recommend when you're doing intermittent fasting one of the best things to do is exercise uh that's what i try to do in the morning i'm going to get kind of into that stuff in a moment but when you are already in that pathway, the AMPK, and you're in that restoration and repair, and you're feeling hungry, when you go do the opposite of what, let's say, your lower self wants to go do, which is eat a bunch of donuts and coffee, and you instead go and choose to, you know, run or exercise or yoga, whatever it is, whatever practice, physically exert yourself. It really provides a powerful window into the fact that our bodies and our will are infinitely more powerful than the limitations that our mind places upon us. And you find that there is just like a strength and a capacity to go past whatever limitations uh, we're finding ourselves stuck with. So uh, when it comes to like one or three day fasts, I recommend exercise. I recommend engaging with the world. Uh, I recommend like getting into things and not just being like, oh, I'm on a two day fast, so I'm just going to like stay home and be sitting in my little ball. No, I find like after, after three days, like I kind of will become a little bit more of a hermit if I do that, because you get really, really open, man. <laughs> like if you don't have food for three or four days and you're doing other practices and you've, you know, you've been doing this stuff for years, even if you haven't, you become very open, which is both extremely cathartic and liberating, but it also can make you susceptible and can, can sometimes just make for some very uncomfortable interactions with people, uh, which is not a bad thing. It, it's just that like, you know, there's sometimes there's just a, there's a certain threshold of how much you can take uh, of that. And, you know, this is also something you have to constantly study with these practices is like, okay, how much do I really need of this? What dosage do I need of this medicine? Because, you know, food deprivation and excess sleep, sunlight, yoga, meditation, plant medicine, uh, any and all these things, we always need to look at like, what is the what is the right dosage I need? Because there's general set dosages for everything. Like I'm recommending do 16-hour fast, 8-hour feeding window. Do it daily. But sometimes, you know, maybe it's better to break from that. And maybe you need to do a 20-hour fast. Okay, maybe you just need to do like 12. In general, the recommendation is strongly to keep it consistent. Meaning, if you're starting at 10.30 in the morning and ending at 6.30 at night keep it there as much as possible with just a three hour window of fluctuation at the very most because your genes start to attune themselves with the cycles that you establish so if you're eating consistently at those times and all of a sudden you eat like seven hours earlier or later or something like that they say according to neuroscience it's the equivalent of changing time zones it throws your system out of whack i've done this before you know we had a a vision quest and I was supporting and I decided to make a giant thing of guacamole at like three in the morning. And I ate pretty much a huge amount of guacamole and chips at three in the morning. I felt fine soon after. I'm also fairly young. I'm 32. I don't know. So maybe I have a little bit of uh, leeway with that. But in general, being as strict with this as possible is for your benefit. And 
you know, that's why it's a discipline because it requires restricting yourself and, and limiting the part of yourself that wants to just like quote unquote be free. And that's one of the funny things about these disciplines. They're not there to enslave you. They're there to free you. It's just a counterintuitive approach is that it's by sort of doing the thing we don't want to do. We're able to find more freedom to expand in ways that we didn't think were possible and are more what we actually want to do. Yeah, we know you want to eat ice cream all day long. But do you really want to do that? No, of course not. You get sick and it's kind of repulsive and you get super overweight. What you really want to do is become physically, mentally, emotionally healthy, fit, strong, conscious, compassionate, aware, and less compulsive. And abstaining is going to lead to that. So just things to reflect upon. Uh, But it is good. When you are going into deeper fasts, if you feel it, to go into a more restful, solitary, and meditative state. One of the most beautiful things about fasting is that you can very easily just sit down, close your eyes, and the state of consciousness that you would have needed to get into uh, had you been eating a lot, which would have taken perhaps a long time with a lot of practice, even fasting in the right way, in the right environment, the right intention, and so on, you just sit down and close your eyes and all of a sudden you're boom you're right like in a very deep place in your heart in a place with a lot of revelation and clarity and understanding and peace so uh understanding the right dosage you know in the hatha yoga pradpika they do not recommend fasting excessively and i don't i don't believe that any tradition really recommends it uh excessively fasting that's why i'm looking at this like one 24 36 hour fast a week 16 hours to eight every day try to do a five-day water fast four times a year i do it in conjunction with the equinoxes and solstices sometimes you have to break a little bit from it we have we tend to do big retreats and stuff like that around those times and sometimes it's like you know five days just water and it's like 90 people around you and you're just like Okay, I'm going to eat a little something just to so I, I remain physically <laughs> on the physical plane. But uh, if you can synchronize your fasting with the solstices it makes and the equinox, it makes a huge difference. During those time periods, I find from what I've heard from elders, there's a very cosmic, powerful forces that are moving through life. Uh, all of life is responding to these astrological shifts. You know, as they say, as above, so below. Another thing, both the occult mysticism and science affirm what is happening up there happens inside of us as well. And uh, there's something special and powerful that happens during the solstice and equinoxes. And if you're not in alignment within yourself, energetically, mentally, emotionally, socially speaking, then I find that some really difficult crap comes up during those times, and you're like, whoa, what did I do wrong? But if you are approaching those time periods with a lot of consciousness and a lot of discipline and a lot of restraint and a lot of awareness, and you're opening yourself to receive the energy from a place of uh, grace, you could say, then there is a lot of empowerment and insight and visionary access that comes to you. I don't know if there's a neuroscience correlation for the power of the solstice and equinox yet, but uh, my experience and my study of it 
and my trust in the different elders and traditions of ancient wisdom traditions definitely affirms this and i recommend you know just try it uh with all these things it's all about try see what happens practice it so i always tell people is like you know practice these things like legitimately give yourself ample time to practice these things and you will find that it will create a profound shift for you maybe not heal you completely i don't even know if such a thing is possible but it will bring a radical change to your life and what's wonderful about disciplines is when you take one step the next one reveals itself so each of these things stacking them in conjunction daily allows you to take the next step you know willpower is a muscle discipline is like a habit it's a lifestyle the more that you do it the more that the next right action so to speak will unfold once again as i say all this stuff i'm not a master of it i have constant failures <laughs> all the time with all this stuff but i share it because it helps me stay in connection with it and it benefits people who are looking for things so check out uh previous podcasts i have on stages of fasting you can also just you know youtube that or look it up on google there's tons of information about what fasting does to you scientifically speaking and uh practice it see what happens it's like it's just one of those things that like when all else fails fasting does not fail it works and i think the story of chris palmer about the schizo effective patient is a perfect uh, testament to that statement Okay, so once you have slept well, woken up at at least at sunrise, because that's the optimal time. If you wake up after sunrise, get the light in your eyes still. Sunrise is the optimal time. You want to get this cortisol jump. If you miss it, it's still okay. They say it's within an hour, and there's other things you can do as well. If you, for some reason, aren't able to get outside, uh, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And I know I'm kind of randomly jumping back to that, but it popped into my mind. I had to share it. So once you have uh, slept enough, you've woken up early, I still highly encourage you to like, wake up early. Like waking up early sucks. Like every who likes waking up early? I mean, at least in the initial visceral experience of it, it's not enjoyable. And that's because what's happening oftentimes, there's still adenosine in your system. And... Uh, adenosine is what makes you feel like you've been hit by a train you're all groggy when you wake up and they say there's two ways to effectively clear that out of your system and uh, one is exercise so becoming physically active will get rid of it so if you're feeling sleepy you, the key isn't to sit there and rest until you wake up the key is to jolt and jack up your system and get moving uh, the light helps do that gets that cortisol push but then physical exercise cold water we'll also do I'll get into cold water in a little bit but then the other thing that you can do is wait about two hours and that adenosine is cleared out of your system really interesting the way that caffeine works is it, it's it binds to adenosine receptors in the brain and it doesn't actually clear the adenosine out so caffeine's not giving you more energy what it's doing is temporarily blocking adenosine which makes you tired so when the caffeine clears the adenosine floods that's why you get a crash so if you do take caffeine do not take it when you first wake up you will crash later on you must first wait two hours or exercise vigorously and then take it recommend recommendation to make sure the adenosine is fully cleared out exercise wait two hours 
make sure you got sunlight during that time. And then if you take caffeine, okay, now you won't experience a crash and, and you'll be able to properly absorb it in that way. So physical practice and my sort of approach with this, you know, how to integrate things here. I'm starting with taking care of yourself. A lot of like looking at kind of consciousness as something that is trans transcending the body. If your brain is a light bulb, consciousness is the light. It's maybe the light bulb is generating it. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> maybe it's something that is like floating in the ether, right? And we're more like a radio picking up on a radio frequency. However you want to kind of look at it. My sense is that if your radio is really damaged, your physical state, your brain, your body then you're not going to play the music very well. It's not going to pick up the 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 fullest expression of consciousness that you're capable of. So that's why I'm, I'm emphasizing a lot of this like neuroscience and physical approach and brain health and things like that because uh, when your physicality and your physiology and your, your neurology and biology are not established well, even if there's a mystical transcendental force that is beyond all those things, uh, obviously... You're not going to be able to pick, up, pick it up as well and utilize it. So how to state, create an optimal state of being. Uh, people talk about peak performance, and peak performance is great. It's the best thing you possibly can do, but it's not really realistic because it's the best of the best state of consciousness and being that you can possibly be in. Talking more about like optimal, what's the best state that you can be in within the limitations of the conditions you're faced with on a daily basis? Your optimal state of consciousness for this moment. So taking care of yourself, your physique, your mind, your emotions, all these things. So you've woken up, you got sleep, got your sunlight, you're not eating, now you want to move. So what I tend to do is I always start with running. Uh, what's great about running, it gets you really, really high. <laughs> it gets you outside. Uh, it wakes you up. Uh, there is... The phrase Satchit and Ananda, something like being bliss and consciousness. And there is a endocannabinoid hormone, I believe, neurotransmitter called Ananda, Ananda Mind, named after Ananda, meaning bliss, bliss, uh, bliss chemical that is released specifically through cardiovascular exercise. So if you've ever run and gotten really, really high and feel just like, oh my God, completely blissed out, which is how I feel every morning when I do it, it's because of anandamide, also because of dopamine and adrenaline and uh, these other neurochemicals that come into the picture and the connection with the sun and so on. So um, running, it's like really simple. Uh, a friend of mine told me about a guru. I want to say his name was... Sri Chimnoy, I believe, Indian guru. This guy was pretty cool. He was really into ultra marathons. He there's the ultra marathon. He I believe he started. It's like a three thousand mile race called self transcendence. He advocated for his students to do these crazy long runs as a way to transcend the limitations of the mind. And he was he got hurt running, and some of these cardiovascular practices. So he then he he shifted over to weight training. And there's uh, something he did where he like had built this device 
on a stage and then he was like bench pressing Nelson Mandela. Literally like Nelson Mandela would stand on the platform or something and then Sri Chimnoy and other students would like push him up and it was something like lifting up inspiring and powerful people. So they had like Nelson Mandela and some other really amazing figures of so <laughs> we th you know just, i i like this example because it's not like classical traditional spiritual mystical stuff like a lot of people get really lost i think on uh, the spiritual path because they're too into spiritual stuff <laughs> and uh i mean there was one time i was at this like static dance or something in brooklyn and the person was opening it and they're like saying like, oh, I learned this thing in Kundalini where you put your left hand up and it receives positive energy and your right hand down. That's how you get rid of the negative energy. And like, while that's like a great statement, because placebo effect and, you know, whatever you believe you're affirming and creating and yeah, maybe you are. Uh, releasing some positive or negative energy and, and bringing in positive energy in the left and right hand and all that. But at the end of the day, it's like, is that even real? <laughs> like, I mean, I was doing, I'm like, I don't really, I don't really know, man. I'm not really feeling too much of a change in this. I'm not experiencing anything. I understand the person saying it. Uh, and there's a lot we can say, like just doing anything consciously will have a conscious benefit to it. But what I like about Tree Chim Noise approach and these things related to like tangible practices running weight training asana practice pranayama sitting meditation is that you can take scientific measuring devices and be like whoa your entire hormonal system and your neurology is radically shifted because you have this practice like what's happening to the regions of the brain the thing is lighting up like a christmas tree oh my god i wonder what you're feeling and inside you're like yeah <laughs> it's incredible you know it's ecstatic and so i advocate the cardiovascular practices and like utilizing and moving the body i i think that's a really important part to come in contact with like an ecstatic rapturous experience on a daily basis I think that's one of the most crucial and essential ways to discipline yourself to reap the benefits of a transformative experience. If you're not experiencing ecstatic, blissful rapture daily, then you're doing something wrong. That's the simple thing. Uh, and these practices are not complicated. You don't need to go to a guru to figure out how to run several miles a day. It's very easy. You just start running. It's super cheap. You just buy some shoes. That's it. <laughs> And, uh, you know, personally speaking, I try to run somewhere between five miles and six, seven miles a day. And I find that that's like physically feeling it's it, it gets easy. There's a moment where it comes very simple, but like the inner process of catharsis and bliss and release and rapture and mental clarity uh, never uh, seems to diminish. And I've been doing it daily almost now for a couple of years. And they say that's like the perfect amount of time, like five miles, 45 minutes. Like that's like really where you're getting neurologically the benefits, hormonally the benefits. And I've I've gone for longer and it's it it's great. I also find I have other things to do throughout the day. I'm a father and an artist and do a lot of service work and have a couple jobs and a podcast and stuff. So I, I can't just always run 3,000 miles like Sri Chimnoy, but... Uh, it's a very in 
excellent practice. It wakes you up, especially when it's cold, man. It's great when it's cold. And there's a lot of stuff, you know, I could say about details. Like, for instance, you know, you're acting on your dopaminergic system. So you're doing something that's difficult. So you're activating and stimulating dopamine, which is very beneficial for you. If you listen to music while doing it, it will enhance that. But if you do it daily, like then what happens is because it becomes something you're doing daily, the novelty of it disappears and you don't get the same rush of dopamine necessarily. So it's good sometimes to flip it up and not always do the same route, run for the same amount of time, always have music, simple things like that. And uh, it's just essential. If you want to release energy, clear trauma, purifying your mind, and you want to find stillness, you need to move. You need to move. I spent a long number of years traveling and sitting in meditation and ceremony and airplanes to the airport, from the airport, at the house, eating dinner, not exercising. I lost a lot of weight, and I found it was taking a huge toll on my system. And, you know, I for a lot of people, you know, I used to be an athlete, uh, played football for 11 years and lacrosse for something like nine. I played lacrosse in college for two years and uh, baseball and other things like that growing up. And so I was able to connect right back to athletics when the um, pandemic came into effect and I wasn't traveling so much. And I just, once I started to do that again, my whole system, my entire life just took a huge 180, found so much more energy and strength and drive and willpower and creative uh, sparks. There's a lot of things that can be said about this. Um, I was listening to Ryan Holiday talk about Stoic philosophy, and he was saying, people make this mistake that uh, philosophers are like these, like, <laughs> I don't know how we put it, something like these, like, nerdy guys in little jackets, and they're just, they're like, totally just living in their mind and books and he's like that's a complete distortion of what philosophy was rooted on if you look at the stoics and the people in ancient greece you know marcus aurelius was a wrestler and he said something some of these other guys were like long distance runners and socrates himself was actually a warrior who saw legitimate combat in battle and it's like the idea of the philosophy is that you know in this case you could say philosophy is interchangeable with dharma is that it's it's not something that is just meant to be an intellectual masturbation. It's meant to be something that you're acting upon, that you're putting forth, and you want to discipline the body so as the mind will find stillness and it can endure things. And, man, there's a great quote that I cannot remember. I think it was by Seneca. I'm trying to look it up right now. Disciplining the body like it's a hard winter or something like that. The whole, pres- the whole premise of this is that philosophy, dharma, is not something that uh, is just to be in the abstract. we got to apply it daily. The body should be treated rigorously that it may not be disobedient to the mind, said Seneca. That's a really powerful quote. And so what I've also found is that, like, you know, we think that we're going to run ourselves and exhaust ourselves but when we physically exert ourselves more energy is created and there's a thing called mitochondria biogenesis that stimulated the production of mitochondria which is much 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 more than just energy for your system and your powerhouse of your brain your body it does a lot more than that but the mitochondria biogenesis is stimulated through exercise 
And the reality is, is that, as my teacher, Meisterman Wells says, yoga is not exercise. So why is he saying that? He's saying that because it's about consciousness. At the same time, you could say exercise is not exercise. Because if you are engaging in running, whatever it is, from a place of like deep dharma understanding, realizing that this is activating and stimulating kundalini, consciousness, awareness, compassion, heart-centeredness, clearing my emotional field, then it's not just exercise. It's a spiritual practice. And that's why Sri Chimnoy was an advocate of these ultra marathons and weightlifting. So it's funny because I remember like listening to someone tell me like, oh, I was like weightlifting one time and then I got into it and I, was, I thought it was really vain. So I stopped doing it. And, you know, that was another thing that was, that was just funny to me because I was reflecting on I'm like, well, having like a positive body image and also um, building up your physique so that you're healthy and you're able to endure different disciplines and being better in service to other people and be effective with other practices, whether it be construction work or farming, which are two things I engage a lot in with communal living up here in the forest. Uh, it's not really an act of vanity so much as it is an act of just, you know, stabilizing yourself and empowering yourself. Then also understanding too, when you're weightlifting, it is uh, acting on this dopaminergic system as well. It's encouraging you to seek out hard things. It's getting you to a place where you're seeking uh, fulfillment and empowerment, not by just, for instance, taking tobacco products, <laughs> which is a great way to mess yourself up, but instead uh, doing something that sucks, doing something that's hard, doing something that is resistance and there's adversity. So it's like you're prepping yourself to find meaning and connection and empowerment in that practice. So. I personally, I like to run like five miles. I like to come back and I try to lift weights every other day. I don't go crazy or anything like that. Just something simple so that uh, I'm not damaging anything. Um, I had severe back pain for like, I want to say 10 years from having a job in New York City, driving a van around, working for a raw food juice company and just not sitting properly. And then, as I said before, I was traveling around airplanes a lot and meditation ceremonies and stuff and like just not sitting uh, just sitting too much rather and not engaging the other muscles. Things start to go dormant. Your body starts to go to sleep and uh, misalignment happens. When I moved upstate out of the city into the forest and started doing a lot of physical labor, my back problem, especially once I started weightlifting, just cleared up. It's completely gone now. I don't have any back pain at all. I can sit for a long time and I'm okay. And so we're talking about practices here that are allowing us to be in service practices that are teaching us to seek out adversity and stress and discomfort and to find empowerment and joy and happiness through those things and to find practices that are simple but teach us to transcend the limitations of our mind and it's funny because it's like you could go to a gym and get all these crazy fancy cool expensive machines and so on or you just buy a pair of shoes and run and, you know i bought like a set of some simple dumbbells and just like that's it you don't need anything more than that probably could do just as much with just some logs outside in the forest man it's like we create complexities for things because uh, there's a business behind it but what i want to emphasize is that these practices while maybe they're not 
like always the most traditional spiritual thing, unless you're Sri Chimnoy, I guess. Uh, if you approach them in the right way, as did like these Stoic philosophers, they can lead to a clarity of mind and a strength of the mind that can lead to real right ethical action, right compassionate action, and can lead you to a place where you can utilize your health and well-being for the benefit of other people. So it becomes a tool in service of compassionate action, which is our main focus of this all this so asana yoga hatha yoga i haven't in the past couple months really been on top of my hatha asana yoga and transparency uh yet it is extremely important in a lot of ways especially if you're doing a lot of running i think it's important to just be in that place of stretching out the system so that it can take the endurance of running and stress on the body you know i heard something like that people who practice yoga can withstand uh pain twice as much as people that do not something about the way that the stretching activates neurons in the brain so at the same time right yoga is not postures yoga is not exercise Yoga is an inner posture of how we're relating to ourselves and others. And while that's the case, I, I do find it's helpful to do a lot of different practices, a lot of different postures, things that are pertaining to balance and strength and endurance. These are all tools that are going to help you in whatever other obstacles we face throughout the day. And I think there's not so much more that needs to be said than observe what life is like in your daily life is life is like when you do the practice of asana and hatha and compare that to when you don't see what happens see how much more patient you were see how much more peaceful you were equanimous you were see what kind of decisions you made how much more impulsive you were and it's a pretty clear indication of the importance of it so as my teacher says these practices are for your protection freedom and benefit and you want to center your life around these practices you want these practices to take precedent. Everything else goes after these. Because if you don't take care of yourself based on these practices, I'm also including, as I say, this sitting meditation and pranayama. So, uh, if you don't do that, then what happens is your social life falls apart, your relationships fall apart, your creative capacity is deeply limited, your selfishness increases, your mental and emotional health just deteriorates. So emphasize that you're going to put yourself in a place of vitality starting from within that vitality will then radiate outwards and you'll be able to make a powerful impact upon others so start from within first this is how i approach things pranayama so there's so many different types of pranayama the things that i tend to do i love wim hof breathing i don't do it daily it's too strong i find to do it daily not too strong, but it's just like, it's a lot. And uh, I find, you know, intermittently throughout the week, it can be very effective. But the times when I am able to do it prior to getting into cold water, very, very effective and very helpful because it spikes adrenaline. It makes you very alert. The days where I'm like really tired when I wake up in the morning and it's just like, I can't bring myself to, to physically move even though I have the knowledge it will clear out the adenosine and make myself feel awake. Sometimes you're just like mentally like, all right, man, I just need to sit here. 
Wim Hof breathing is fantastic because it jolts up cortisol and adrenaline. It'll make you awake and you don't have to move and you can kind of just gradually but quickly at the same time, if that makes sense, get right into it. So it's a great practice to wake yourself up. If you have any issues with your immune system, the adrenaline will activate your immune response in a very powerful way. I was hearing there's actually a condition where when people are taking care of someone or they're very busy, they won't get sick. But then when there is a vacation and a break, all of a sudden they immediately fall ill. And that's because when you have something to focus on and take care of or it's stressful, the release of adrenaline from that pressure stimulus actually uh, bolsters your immune system. They say it releases killer T cells from the pancreas thought that was very fascinating this idea of like when we shift our focus to urgency and stress on the outside world then our body responds in a positive way and this is like a huge part of why these practices are important because they're not just practices to like clean us and make us strong but they also are all about stress resilience and that's something that i think is extraordinary extraordinarily important with these integration practices is stress resilience that was one of the things i really focused on during the pandemic was like okay what is going to be something that allows me to just take a huge dose of stress and be able to hold it and work with it and gaber mate doctor trauma specialist who got in trouble for serving ayahuasca to people up in vancouver in canada but then i guess nothing happened to him or something happened but it wasn't a big deal uh, said that healing is not clearing the pain so much as is learning to hold it. And I really agree with this because it's like when you're able to take whatever it is that's irritating you or pain or traumatic things from the past and you're able to just embrace it and welcome it in, then you can utilize it as a tool to spark a creative action, active service, or engage into a discipline that can later allow you to elevate above it. But understanding right that all the negative things that happen to us in life are tools for transcending ourselves and uh these practices cardiovascular endurance weight training pranayama definitely like wim hof breathing uh asana for sure long periods of sitting meditation it's all about stress resilience you're basically creating in limbic friction. You're creating friction. You're creating stress intentionally. You're intentionally putting yourself in discomfort with these practices. The more you do it, the easier it gets. The more your tolerance expands, the more your will goes up, your stamina, and your physiological system responds to this. And then when life throws huge, horrible tests in your path, maybe you don't respond by smashing a window like you used to <laughs> maybe you respond by being like okay i'll smash it in 10 minutes <laughs> or you just have a little bit or you have patience altogether and you're able to just observe the situation feel it allow it to be there and then allow it to clear out and without creating and compounding pain and drama and suffering on your own behalf and on behalf of others so these practices are not just for themselves in and of themselves they're also basically creating a buffering system so that when you go out into the world you are not getting yourself into situations you're keeping yourself 
in a place of resiliency. You're being able to weather whatever storm comes your way. If you want to learn traditional sitting meditation, I recommend Vipassana. Research Vipassana meditation. I recommend the one taught by S.N. Goenka. It's what I was trained in. I haven't remained uh, a strict adherence of the practice, meaning I still meditate, but I've kind of allow myself to do it in my own way that works for me, which is my own personal process and not strictly following the guidelines taught by S.N. Goenka tradition. But I utilize what I absorbed from the Vipassana tradition by S.N. Goenka and led me into a place where I'm able to go off a little bit on my own and connect to uh, a lot of equanimity and stillness. And, you know, it's a it's a extremely amazing tradition. It's the first thing I was really, like, formally trained in. And that was in 2010. And it is... You know, it's beautiful, it's empowering, it's very accessible. Those courses are all over the world. They're essentially, by whatever donation you want to give, 10 days silent meditation, 12 hours a day, no talking, reading, writing, music. There's really nothing other than just being with yourself and learning to become equanimous, peaceful, compassionate, and release yourself from the patterns of craving and aversion. So seek out, of course, seek out uh, those centers and they're also very much service-based as well. Uh, I, as I understand, the deeper you get into them, the more they emphasize the importance of service to other people. So in a lot of ways, that this is a practice that's like in my core way of relating to life, even though I've kind of deviated a little bit from it and incorporated other traditions within the shamanic and yoga practices as well. So uh, practice sitting still. That was something that... Chognam Trungpa said about people in the West, they just need to learn to just sit still. When you sit still, you're finally able to just see how much of a psychopath you actually are. <laughs> and hopefully that will result in some level of humility. Uh, and also an understanding that we shouldn't always just blindly trust ourselves. When you sit there and you really watch and listen to your own thoughts, you're like, man, like the person that's running this show... I don't know if I should just give them free reign. I got to have a little bit of a leash on them. That's been my experience of it and a little bit of a sense of humor. And uh, just learning to be with discomfort. When I, the first Vipassana uh, retreat I ever did, I couldn't sit still for more than 10 minutes. And it was like hellish. It was just hellish. So much pain, man. By the end of the course, I got 40 minutes in and it was just like trench warfare to get to 40 minutes. It was not easy. And then I went and did another one, another 10-day course a couple years later after a lot of, you know, changed my diet, you know, a lot of things like ceremonial work and all kinds of stuff, living in an ashram, community service work, uh, cleaned a lot. And I was able to sit still for two hours without moving. Super powerful experience. And consistently able to sit for these hour-long, fierce determination sits. And of course, it's not about for how long or short or whatever it is that you can sit. The practice of the sitting meditation that you really want to start to cultivate is this state where you are in a place of acceptance, equanimity of things. Meaning, uh, you might be in a lot of pain, but that's okay. <laughs> you might have had this rapturous experience but you don't really, 
you're not getting caught in it. It's not like, oh my god, I'm in a rapturous experience. I figured something out. It's not like that. Maybe the experience happens, but you're just kind of watching it. And then when it passes, because it passes like everything does, every state of consciousness, emotional thing, every thought, once it gets to a place of change, the equanimity is still there. There's not a sense of loss and disappointment. And this is what we want to try to cultivate is this detachment where it doesn't matter so much what sensation we're experiencing or what state we're in so much as that we're in this place of more of a peaceful witness and acceptance of things where we're not craving something or having aversion towards what is. And uh, this is something that we need to work on daily. They say yoga is equanimity. And I don't think Marcus Aurelius said something about stoicism and the practice and importance of equanimity as, as the real thing that leads to happiness and freedom in life. So wherever you go, this practice of equanimity in all the native traditions is just something that's deeply essential. In the teepee, they have the half moon over the altar place of the fire. And they say the little tip of the teepee where the road man is walking and he shouldn't be uh, too far to the left, too far to the right. you got to remain perfect balance. You can't go one far in one direction or the other one. Having that equanimity. Sitting meditation is deeply important just to consistently train ourselves to access that state of consciousness. So, movement. Ending in stillness. Move first. Uh... You know, there's a reason that meditation is kind of like one of these more actually advanced techniques. The first thing you want to do, like move, move. And they actually say too, like, that they wouldn't even teach you the postures uh, until you cleaned out your vices traditionally. You really had to clean out, like, alcohol, tobacco, any drugs, meat, excessive eating. You really need to be, like, clean in that respect. Then you could learn the physical postures and the movement. Okay, now we're going to teach you about the breath. Okay, now we're going to teach you to sit still. Now it's going to work really, really well. So making an effort to do all these things as much as possible daily or several times a week at the very least, this is quintessential to taking something that was transformative and giving us access to that state of consciousness daily. And once we're able to access the state of consciousness daily, then no longer do we need to have repetitive transformative experiences. Say, ah, okay, I have a consistent and constant connection to the medicine of what that was. I'm able to access it. Maybe not a full expression if I was, you know, fasting for like 10 days and sitting in the forest alone and consuming all kinds of stuff or whatever. But... I'm able to touch it. I'm able to feel it. I'm able to hear it. I'm able to be in contact with it and allow it to move through me. And the more that I do these practices, the more that I remain on top of my diet, my energetic, emotional, mental, physical hygiene, the more that this uh, communication between me and the mystery, the divinity, the mystical, the source, unconscious, whatever it is, God, uh, the more this communication enhances and becomes more clear and an understanding of what my path is and what direction to take and what to do when there's adversity and stress and drama or trauma and pain and understanding, you know, this is part of the plan of the way things are unfolding 
and that this is part of the teaching and that I'm welcoming it in. But having a alignment with these practices keeps us in this meditation of right relationship to the mystery. So don't skip on these things. Make your life focused around these practices. And also in relationship to pranayama, <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing maybe. I play didgeridoo. I play didgeridoo for my kid a lot, Makoa. The didgeridoo to me is like deep pranayama. I try to play the didge for him a couple times a week in the morning. <laughs> so to me, that's like pranayama, but it's also very much like a karma yoga because I'm playing uh, in service for Makoa, my son. But then also it's a bhakti yoga because it's like a joyful celebration. And then you could say it's also an asana practice because I'm sitting in stillness. So for me, didgeridoo playing is like psh, powerful yoga practice. <laughs> I recommend uh, finding creative ways to incorporate things, uh, spiritual practices into your life. Um, and to think outside of the box, like how, you know, you say, oh, I can't have time to meditate because I have kids. Okay, but maybe you can sit in meditation and watch your kids. Maybe like really observe like, okay, how much of a control freak am I with this guy? Uh-huh. <laughs> how much of a, how much do I need to become more alert and more caring and more engaged? Okay, so that's my sitting meditation. But like, you're not just sitting you're actually inwardly focused and observing what kind of inner mechanics and engineering can i impart as i am watching the child making the child the object of your meditation okay i don't have time to run because i have a kid i'm gonna get a stroller that allows me to run while pushing him i'll put him in a uh, baby carrier and walk several miles uh you know i will do asana practice while he's climbing on me whatever it is i'll do weight training while i'm watching him all these things are totally possible and just got to think creatively pranayama i will play the didgeridoo form or a flute or some other kind of instrument there's all kinds of ways to incorporate whatever it is that we feel is limiting us and holding us back from exercising our discipline and welcoming it into the practice uh and finding you know, perhaps it's not the old 100% that we were at, but it is a new 100% given the limitations of our outer circumstances. And it also enhances our capacity to be creative and to think outside of the box of what this stuff needs to look and feel like. So right effort, putting forth right effort in relationship to the limitations that we're dealing with. Okay. So you've woken up after sleeping well, you got sunlight in your eyes, you aren't eating, you ran, you did yoga, you did breath work, you lifted weights, you were sitting in meditation, you're in a good place. I mean, you're like undoubtedly in a very high place right now. And you're like, wow, I can do this every single day. <laughs> so it's getting later meaning your adrenaline levels have increased and you did breath work which also increased your adrenaline levels if you did Wim Hof breathing or if you're playing the didge or if you're watching your kid and they almost killed themselves and you freaked out <laughs> but as you are uh, and you're thinking what can I what's the next step okay I want to like flush everything out of my system daily cold exposure this is like this is a beautiful moment of the day in the morning right 
So the recommendation for medical people is like 11 minutes per week of cold exposure. Uh, I personally try to do about 20 to 30 minutes of it a week. You know, at the same time, that's after like many years of like consistent practice and a lot of other training and many other traditions. Uh, so the recommendation is to go slow, gradual, and then define like what is your medium middle ground. You don't need once you're doing this stuff daily, you don't need to do deep long periods. I used to do like 15 minutes in the ice bath. I did it every day for like a month and a half. Uh, it definitely did not damage me or anything like that but it was really intense <laughs> like and it, it was like uh it was it was it felt I stopped doing because it felt like it was too taxing it was like whoa this is almost like an afternoon I felt like I hadn't eaten food in like 10 days it was like I was just blew me open in all kinds of ways and I was like you know what there's probably a more gradual and a more appropriate dosage of this medicine that I should take and uh, what I personally have found is that just like in the morning time, man, a cold shower for like two minutes, that's perfect. That like, because you're doing it daily in conjunction with all these other practices, you don't need something that's so like mind-blowing as a cold plunge for 15 minutes. If you aren't in a really clean place, or if you're new to this thing, then sometimes doing something that's more intensive can help you kind of at least get an understanding of the depth of your mind and your spirit and so on. But once you have that connection, like I said, you just do a few minutes of the small stress response thing, cold shower, it's really all you need. You don't need more than that. Although I do personally still love to do the cold plunge in the evening, which is completely counterintuitive for the record. My understanding of how it works is that when you want to go to sleep, you want your body to be in a relatively cool place so if you get in cold water what's going to happen is your body's going to start heating itself up from the inside once you get over the initial shock of the of the cold water and you recuperate your core temperature is going to raise which for most people will keep them awake uh, for myself personally i found that it's actually really easy for me to fall asleep after a cold plunge and i seem to sleep sleep really really well and i wake up feeling really really good so i don't really analyze it too much more than that it's a little bit neurologically backwards but that's okay um, for me personally at this time, uh, I find doing a cold plunge in the morning is like too much. Like I said, it's just, it opens me up too much. And then I become like really sensitive to a lot of things in the external world. And I find that the cold shower is like the right degree of stress that leads to the right amount of empowerment to effectively handle external stress in the outside world. So, uh, I would rather take a cold plunge in the morning. I love the experience of getting in the cold water, but hours later, it just feels like too much. So it's an interesting thing because a lot of people say, like, oh, the cold sucks or it hurts. Uh, I find it's actually like pretty blissful to get in there. There's definitely a, like inner resistance when you first head in because you go, you know, the adrenaline shoots up and it's like, it's intense. But once it settles and, it, and, you're, and you create a relationship and become cold adapted with it, it's not really too intense. Uh, nonetheless, <laughs> uh, I prefer to do the cold plunge in the evening and I find I just wake up feeling like really really clear and the cold shower is good you know I like to do that around like 10 a.m. or something like that after doing all the physical activity and when the adrenaline levels are at a higher state so that you're kind of doubling up on the adrenaline that the cold water induces so adrenaline is good for you right you know it, it enhances the immune system like blood cells 
enhances cognition, focus, determination, drive, and all these things. Pain resistance, tolerance, stress resilience. So recommend to start slowly and gradual and uh, understand that like a cold shower for two minutes, two, three minutes, even a minute, that can have a really deeply shifting effect on your entire day. Uh, and they say that the cold water enhances, and the cold plunge specifically enhances adrenaline levels by something like 600% in your dopaminergic dopamine response, something like 250%, which is actually more than sex, I believe, and at the same level of cocaine. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, I did a whole part of podcast, couple of them on different things about uh, cold exposure, and there's a lot of stuff out there, so I don't want to get like too into it. But one of the most important things is just that you are able to get warm afterwards. So, um, push-ups, horse stance, jumping jacks, burpees, run in place, anything. <laughs> just do something to get yourself warm. Make sure that you make an effort to do that. Having hot tea, don't do it in nature and then alone. And then you have to run back to your car and it's very far away. Uh really interesting that you tend to get colder after you get out of the cold immersion because of aftershock where all the cold water floods to your core and uh, then recirculates when it's cold to your extremities and when it recirculates the cold blood it makes you colder and so you might feel really like strong in the cold plunge at minute 10 and you get out and you're like oh yeah i'm cold and then 20 minutes later you're like holy shit i'm like severely cold <laughs> so make sure you have something warm to uh, recover in or the right practices to heat yourself up and it's practice that you know there's something like 185,000 kilometers of cardiovascular system in your like veins capillaries and so on in your body um, and they all require little muscles to activate them so when you get in the cold and you shock your cardiovascular system and you feel that pain what it is is the contraction of the cardiovascular system but what that's doing is you are learning to exercise that system and how to like deal with blood flow. And if you've ever had any kind of brain injury or trauma, mental, emotional, whatever, whether it was physiological or something that happened with you know people in your life, uh, one of the clear things according from what I understand with science to effectively shift things and heal is to get blood flow to the brain so cold water is like essential for that physical exercise like cardiovascular exercise because you're stimulating blood flow from the heart to the brain and so on same thing you know combining these things together just transforming your life really 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 fast and getting to a place where uh there's just a lot of clarity where before there might have been a lot of confusion just think about how can i bring blood flow to the brain you know with adrenaline Adrenaline can never underestimate adrenaline, simply put. It can it can allow you to do anything. You know, people I talk about one of the podcasts is concept of hysterical strength. They say that Jack Kirby, who invented the I believe it was the Incredible Hulk, he based the character off of these people who would flip the car to save the baby and or the tractor, the grandfather would flip it over to save the kid. And like that's like a legit thing. That would happen. And like this idea of hysterical strength, what is that? It's adrenaline. Adrenaline can get, let you get through anything, like anything, man. So, like, if you need to get through something that's difficult, 
exercise, fasting, cold water, breath work. These are all practices that enhance adrenaline. These are all practices that just allow you to break through barriers. And, you know, people talk about like adrenal fatigue. I was looking it up. There technically is no medical condition called adrenal fatigue for the record. And what I heard Andrew Huberman say is that there's enough adrenaline in your adrenals to last you 200 years. Uh, I'm not an endocrinologist, but uh, I thought that was an interesting statement. And while I don't think you should become an adrenaline junkie, because I don't think that's healthy, or become addicted to adrenaline, I do think that the right dosage of it, coming back to the middle way, uh, can allow you to effectively move through the challenges of your life in a way that's going to be very empowering and understanding that like your capacity to feel good and strong if you engage in these practices can be more way more under your control than you would have ever thought so utilizing cold water as a stimulus to Activate your immune system, your cognition, bring blood flow to the brain, engage your cardiovascular system, activate adrenaline, dopamine. It's pretty powerful. And what they say is unique about cold water is it always works with adrenaline. It's like you can do it several times a day and it's always going to do it. If you're in the cold plunge and you're sitting still, you'll notice that there's a little bit of like a warm thermal layer that accumulates around you. And if you move, because your body's putting off heat. So then if you move, it, it breaks that up, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, you get that shot of adrenaline again. Uh, so it's like even when you're in the cold water, it can hit you again just by moving. So it's this really reliable and consistent stimulus, you know, unlike, uh, let's say, um, tobacco or something like that, or, you know, cocaine where you keep taking it, it's just not working anymore and damaging you. Instead, cold water, it's always going to work. And then just the whole, you know, the psychological component, you're doing something that is just like uncomfortable or painful and it sucks. But like what happens is when you break through that initial resistance, there's tremendous bliss and physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual empowerment. If you really want to get dropped into the present moment, the cold water will bring you there very, very quickly. <laughs> and uh, I personally have found that this is a wonderful practice when you're doing intensive work that requires a lot of endurance and strength uh, a lot of like ceremonial meditative work you know where you're really asking to be in a place of like deep discomfort and you're holding a lot of stress or pain or something the cold water teaches you really how to do that it teaches you to really control something and how to like really work with it and remain calm you know decondition your stress response and to allow your system to flood with adrenaline, which ordinarily is triggering right, your flight or fight coming from your, uh, I believe it's your autonomic nervous system coming in from your, what is that thing called? The amygdala, the reptilian brain, right? It's asking you to panic. It's asking you to freak out. You know, sometimes when you do these deeper practices, you're going into a really deep state of consciousness and you're facing an aspect of yourself that is frightening, is overwhelming. And it's really helpful to have daily training to learn to like, okay, when I get hit with that adrenaline that makes me want to run or freak out or fight, I just go 
calm, 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 stay calm, remember to breathe, and just feel it, and then you don't react, but adrenaline is like, you know, it's tricky, man, when, uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny too, because like, I run around my neighborhood, and there's dogs always to chase after me, and they're just like these goofy border collie dogs, but you know, sometimes they sneak up on me, and I have music blasting the headphones, and I don't see them till they're right next to me, and like, oh, <laughs> and, uh, when that happens, I, um, you know, I get that jolt of adrenaline, like fear. And, you know, when there's things sneak up on you, they can get you like that. You'll be, you'll be afraid. Right. So, uh, even if you do the training, there's still gonna be things that happen to you in life, you know, car accident or, or, you know, someone screams at you or something or, um, all kinds of little accidents and things that can happen that scare you, whatever, you know, flame shoots up in the kitchen that happened at our house the other night. And uh, adrenaline will bolster your system. And so something to be aware of that, you know, you can train yourself, but of course you can't really predict the unpredictable, just what happens. But it will put you in a better position to handle adversity and rapid change if you are acclimating and familiarizing your system with panic and adrenaline like okay this is what it's like to panic but i'm not gonna panic i'm gonna override that and you know there's uh what happens is that like when the amygdala takes over and that fear panic arises we shut down our prefrontal cortex in the front of our brain which is a part responsible for like you know cognition ethical moral decision and rational thinking and so on and uh when that part shuts down, right, we just become like an impulsive animal. I gotta get out, or I gotta kill this thing to survive, right? You're not even thinking this, it's just what's happening. You know, this is like when uh, your dog bites you and you just hit your dog, maybe, or something like that. And you're later on, you're like, why did I just hit my dog? Well, it's like, you know, adrenaline, you just react to it. But if you can get in cold water and then, you know, do math problems, not something I've necessarily tried much of, but this is a legitimate thing that some people do. Uh, you can train your your prefrontal cortex uh, to not become overridden by the stress response of the amygdala. And you can start to essentially keep a strong composure and cognition while this thing is saying panic. And so you're creating, the, you're not giving way to the momentum and the pendulum swing of the panic and allows you to have creative solutions to problems. So even if you're not doing that, just exposing yourself to the experience of the adrenaline can kind of lead to that state. So the cold water, right, it's like it's not just about like the immune response. It's not just about like releasing the emotional stress. It's not just about uh, becoming flooded with you know adrenaline to give you energy and mental clarity and the dopamine make you feel good. It's also just to train you to deal with future problems <laughs> that's a lot of what this stuff is all about is that like okay we know that life is just one giant test after another it's just going to push our buttons and it's going to mess with us and it's going to trigger us how can i just put myself in a state where when the thing shows up at the door i'm there and i'm calm okay that's in a lot of ways why i do the cold water daily is that i want to bring more calmness into my life and I want to be able to stay rational. And I want to keep out of my impulsive, animalistic mind. There's a lot more you could say about it. But there's a lot that's already been said about it in my podcast. 
which you guys can find on Andrew Hooperman is great stuff, Rhonda Patrick, Wim Hof, many people. So I would just encourage people to check it out on your own accord and see like really uh, what the practice does for you. Because at the end of the day, it's like we can read about all this stuff, but unless you actually test it and practice it, then it's just a bunch of uh, trivia and it's it's worthless. So recommendation is to engage with these things constantly. Okay. Taking a break. <laughs>